this is going to be bragging rights for life to be on this expedition. It's a bucket list item that is going to be hard to surpass, for sure. I feel like I'm already on another yeah. planet, but I'm just in the suit. It feels pretty amazing. You can imagine walking on to getting settled onto a ship and thinking that you were about ready to take off. Going on a Space Angels expedition. <laughs> Welcome to the Space Angels Podcast, Episode 5, Inside Expedition 17. I'm your host, Chad Anderson, CEO of Space Angels, the world's leading source of capital for early-stage space ventures. The purpose of this podcast is to provide angel investors with the context and information necessary to understand the real risks and opportunities in this dynamic, new entrepreneurial space age. So this is going to be a really fun departure from the format of our previous episodes. Today we're going to give you an inside look, or I should say listen, into our recent expedition where a group of Space Angels members toured the most prominent space sites in Houston. So what is a Space Angels expedition? Well, every year Space Angels hosts an event where a limited group of 20 of our most active investor members come together for an inside, first-hand look at the nascent private space industry. In past years, we've traveled to space industry hotbeds, San Francisco, Seattle, and Southern California. You can see photo and video highlights and learn more about our past events on our website. For 2017, in the spirit of the 55th anniversary of John F. Kennedy's moon speech given at Rice University in Houston, we decided to go there to honor the past and fuel the future. And in line with that theme, we spent a full day on an incredible VIP tour of NASA Johnson Space Center, where we visited the Neutral Buoyancy Lab, the Space Vehicle Mock-Up Facility, the Robotics Facility, Human Health and Performance, and spent another full day visiting local commercial space ventures, NanoRacks and Ad Astra Rocket Company. And before that, we kicked it all off on day one with a spacesuit experience, where participants were able to don and pressurize in an actual commercial spacesuit by Final Frontier Design. All said, this was an opportunity for our members to experience the extraordinary like never before. Joining us on this year's trip and with me in the studio today is author, journalist, British television personality, and Space Angels contributor, Sarah Crudis, who's going to give us an inside listen to Expedition 17 Houston. Hi, Sarah. Hi, Chad. Thanks for having me on the program. So what did you think? Did you enjoy your trip to Houston? Yeah, um, it was great. It was certainly an, an extraordinary experience, not just to you know explore the past of exploration going around NASA at the Johnson Space Center in Houston, but also to visit modern space companies such as Final Frontier Design, NanoRacks, and Ad Astra. And it was also great to get to know some of the Space Angels' leading members. Now, I got a chance to recall many of my interactions with these members, and I've put together a program that I'd like to share with you now. That sounds amazing. Sarah, please take it away. So if you've been paying attention to Space Angels over the past year, you've probably noticed they've done a brand refresh to reflect both the substance and the excitement of this brave new era of aerospace entrepreneurship. Now, the Space Angels expeditions are one of the most direct ways that Space Angels can help investors understand this as well as experience the excitement for themselves. So why is it so important to provide members with this opportunity? Well, Space Angels understands that angel investors who invest in space are multifaceted, which basically means they not only want their investments to build wealth, but they also want their investments to change the world we live in. What does it mean to you to enable um, new space activity and uh, something which is going to change the way humanity explores space eventually? Ironically, one of the 
fun things about the space investments is that they're so alternative to anything that anyone can offer for investments long term. I don't know how history will remember me, but I know that my children pay attention to what I do. And, you know, without them really knowing why I'm doing all of this, the inspiration to continue with science, the inspiration to to take humanity and take it the next step, another generation, um, even if it isn't the family business, uh, the idea that we're making a better change, uh, or at least a small step forward. Um, that's That keeps me going, keeps me interested in what Space Angels finds and what we can invest in. Um, so I follow the lead of people who do good due diligence, and uh, you know it's exciting to see all the opportunities. And I think the kids are, you know, curious and engaged because of what we're able to find and invest in, have some skin in the game, but also hopefully inspire other people to do something good. So to translate this all into English, it's really just a massive opportunity for members to get together and start to build real relationships with what Space Angels affectionately refers to as the tribe of the astropreneur. Day one, Final Frontier designs the spacesuit experience. For Expedition 17, Space Angels set out to provide the most immersive experience possible for members. And what could be more immersive than having all of the guests get to don and be pressurized into the next generation spacesuits being designed for both NASA and private space ventures? Thanks to the team at Final Frontier Design and Space Angels, members were able to have this once in a lifetime experience. Uh, so, my name is Ted Southern. I'm the president and co founder of Final Frontier Design. This is my partner Nikolai here. And uh, today we are setting a record, an FFB record, by putting 17 people into two launch and re-entry suits over the course of the afternoon. So this is a launch and re-entry space suit um, designed for the commercial space market. And one of the things we're trying to show here is how adaptable the suit is to a bunch of different body types. There's 13 individual sizing points on the suit, and um, we are able to accommodate a huge size range between 5'2 and 6'6". Um, and there's obviously a fair amount of adjustment, but we can do that within, you know, five minutes or so for each individual. Person. I need to be keeping doing this. Sure. To check myself. Yeah, yeah. No, no problem. No problem. So I can get out. Yeah. I get it. Final Frontier Design was founded in 2010 on the winnings of NASA's Astronaut Glove Challenge with the goal of developing safety garments to enable next-generation spaceflight. True astropreneurs, this Brooklyn-based team consists of a costume designer and a former engineer from the Soviet space program. I graduated Moscow Aviation Institute in 1986 and started to work for a spacesuit company in Russia. There's only one company in Russia that provides all spacesuits, and uh, I have uh, four patents for spacesuits. I have a lot of publications. I left company in 2006 in position together with that uh, one astronaut glove challenge competition, NASA. We got a check, 100,000 bucks, and uh, we found a final frontier design got green card as outstanding scientists and uh, we have a few contracts with NASA. 
Being pressurised into a spacesuit is serious business and all of us had to sign waivers to be able to participate. Essentially, this pressure comes from pumping air into the spacesuit to keep astronauts' insides from expanding into the vacuum of space if the crew cabin were to, for some reason, depressurise. Um, so what are you doing now? So there's some buckles here. These are restraint buckles. We have to open these up when you're putting on the suit. Uh, but once the suit starts pressurizing, we want all the loads to go to the buckles rather than on the fabric. So how long does it normally take to get the average person into a suit then? Less, less than 10 minutes, more like five minutes. That's incredible. Yeah. So do you think if people had to wear spacesuits for space tourism, you'd have less people wanting to go into space? I think you'd have more people wanting to go to space because A, they'd be much safer, and B, they'd look a lot cooler, and C, you would get added benefit and value for the dollar from the training process. I think this is fun and interesting and people enjoy it. And if you're not doing this, then the $300,000 you're spending is going to go in 45 minutes on flight. Whereas if you have a whole training procedure, I think you feel a lot more like an astronaut. It was a pretty amazing experience to see 20 adult Space Angels members getting to live out that childhood fantasy of finally getting to play astronauts. Oh, okay. This is going to be bragging rights for life, I think, to be on this expedition, for sure. It's a bucket list item that is going to be hard to surpass, for sure. We're totally excited about it. I feel like I'm already on another yeah. planet, but I'm just in the suit. How, how did that happen? That's so funny. <laughs> I don't even have all the air in the suit yet. How was it? They're loving it. Um, I mean, I was super excited, and I was worried that, you know, we're here for a long time, everybody's trying it on, it was going to take a few hours, but everybody's into it. I mean, we've been doing it now for like three hours, but everybody's still into it. It's fun. It's fun to like put a new person in to see their reaction. Do they pressurize? Do they not? Are they claustrophobic? Are they not? Do they jump around and do push-ups? You know, do they... Because uh, Final Frontier Design, the company, is actually getting a lot of good data out of it. Their suits are made, as they said in the beginning, to be refitted, right? So to put it on and right-size it for your suit by pulling these cables here, tightening this up, loosening this up. And so they get, you know, 17 different body types. Um, they're getting a lot of good data from that. But then also, if you watch, you know, Ted is having them do different exercises and things, moving around. Hey, can you do this? Can you do that? So um, he's keeping a log of everyone. And this is actually, you know, we're just having a good time, but it's actually contributing to, you know, our human spaceflight ambitions in space. Yes, this is fantastic. I feel as if I'm hitting a bit of the top of the earth though here, this thing. I don't know. It's still outside, but it's uh excellent. Okay. The air is coming. I was on top of that until Yeah, it's uh, probably like uh, one of those uh, old fashioned uh, torture things, you know, where they tighten the screws on you one by one. <laughs> different parts of the body. <laughs> That the Iron Maiden? But there's no pain involved, right? Not yet. No pain. Being an astronaut for the day is a fun but surprisingly tiring experience. And back at the hotel, we all appreciated the incredible dinner on the veranda. Day two, NASA's Johnson Space Center. In keeping with Expedition 17's theme, honor the past, fuel the future, Space Angels planned an entire day for us to take a special behind the scenes VIP tour of NASA's Johnson Space Center. 
We were led on this tour by senior NASA personnel, including directors and deputy directors. This was an action-packed day which spanned from breakfast to dinner, with a marathon of NASA site visits in between. First up was a visit to the Neutral Buoyancy Lab, which is basically a gigantic facility where there's an underwater mock-up of the International Space Station and where all astronauts train for extravehicular activities, also known as EVAs. So, Lane, this is um, absolutely incredible. Is this the largest pool in the world? I think by volume it may be because it's 40 foot deep, but there are others with a larger surface area. And in terms of um, what we can see just here, can you talk us through um, what there is to see here and what sure. the astronauts train uh, So basically the whole, the entire pool is filled with the International Space Station, or at least a portion of it, probably about uh, 40%, 40 or 50% of it, because the space station is much longer than 200 feet, which is the length of this pool. Over on this side, it's maybe hard to see. There's three truss segments starting right here all the way to the end. The International Space Station has about eight truss segments on it. Uh, actually, it would be an odd number, nine <laughs> truss segments. Uh, so we only have three mocked up here because that's all the pool holds. Uh, we have some random truss segments on the International Space Station placed around various other locations just because we need them for training, but they don't fit where they would normally go on the International Space Station. And in terms of training dives, how long will astronauts actually spend in the water on any given day? So our tests are, are six-hour tests. They usually get their head underwater about uh, 9 o'clock in the morning and wow. come up at 3 p.m. And they don't get lunch during this time. <laughs> Big breakfast. Uh, yeah. And and for a planned EVA, a, a task that they're going to do on orbit, <clears throat> they will do it here roughly seven time, five to seven times uh, the length of the EVA up there. So if, if it was a six-hour EVA on orbit, they would be in here five or six times that. Well, um, we also do um, some of the commercial crew vehicles that are coming up, like SpaceX and Boeing, are going to have commercial vehicles taking crew members up to space station and into space. They have to do a lot of initial development type training. And so eventually they will kind of become our primary mission to do something, but right now they're still in development. And so they utilize this facility to come in and do a lot of their development. And that's considered at this point in time commercial because they're still developing their techniques and their vehicles and all of that. So we have a lot of that kind of work coming in here too. Um, does anyone have any questions in particular? If you were asked to kind of describe this place as a story. What is the story of this in terms of how it came to be and what it means to the future of the space program? Um, the story, I think, is that as we knew we were going to be flying shuttle flights and we knew we were going to be building a space station, we needed to have the most effective training for our astronauts as possible. And if you think about it, standing on the ground and trying to do the task, it's really not very realistic. Remember, isn't going to understand what they're really going to have to deal with in space. And so the whole idea of this facility was trying to make an environment as close as possible to what they'll see in space so that they will really get proper training before they go there. Uh, spacewalks are probably some of the most dangerous things we do. You're sending that person out basically in their own little space vehicle to be out there. And so you want to practice everything, you want to know where the issues are, you want them to be prepared as possible. And, so I think in a nutshell, that's the thing is we wanted to find a facility that would get them as ready as we could get them before they went and did it. I think the best compliment these guys have gotten is the crews on orbit will say, 
It's just like the NBL, but I don't see the bubbles going to the top. Next, we headed off to what was one of the most nostalgic stops on our expedition, the historic Mission Control Center. These are actually dummy machines. The computers were down on the first floor. And if you look, if you go up the stairs and you look at the consoles, you can see the monitors. They're black and white, text-only displays. They're the old cathroid ray tubes. You'll notice those silver handles. There's screws there that you could unscrew that and pull those handles and pull those uh, CRTs out and change them because they burnt out quite often. The buttons, all of those buttons are hardwired to mainframes down on the first floor. So these floors are false. That's where all the wiring is. You'll also notice when you go up, uh, there's some pneumatic tubes, just like they have at the banks. And that's how the people that sit in the front room communicate with the people that sit in their back rooms supporting them. So for everybody that sits in mission control, you have a multi-purpose support room that could consist of anywhere from two to 10 people and they are there as a team to work any issues. And so they use the pneumatic tubes to send notes back and forth. It was also a good thing if you were hungry, they could send you some cookies or donuts or bagel or something like that. Uh, obviously, they also played pranks in it, um, sending other things. But this room, um, again, we started in June 1965 and it, we used it up until 1992, and it is a historic landmark. In fact, the whole building is a landmark, this room in particular, though, because the Apollo 11 mission was controlled from here. Not only were we lucky enough to tour the facilities that controlled the Apollo missions to the moon, but we also visited the ISS Flight Control Center, where they're looking after the space station today. If that wasn't enough, our host was none other than Courtney McMillan, who's a NASA flight director. So good morning and welcome to my house. <laughs> this, is, this is the International Space Station Flight Control Room, Picker One. Uh, it used to look exactly like the room you were just in upstairs. Um, and it's been upgraded a few times over the years. Uh, this was for Space Station. It was originally outfitted for science teams. Um, and then in 2006, we outgrew, the flight control team outgrew a different room in the building. Uh, so we upgraded it to uh, fit the space station flight control team as it had grown over the years. Uh, and we also last year just went through another upgrade. So this, this room has been refreshed several times um, as the technology has developed and as our needs have evolved. Um, we are in the middle of a workday, toward the end of a workday. We're coming up on a planning conference at the end of the day with the crew. We have a planning conference with the crew every morning and every evening to update them on anything that has changed in the last little while. Um, catch up with any questions we have for them on what happened during the day or let them ask questions of, of the teams on the ground that didn't fit into whatever they were doing during the day. Um, before that, we will have a lengthy conference, about an hour long, with the, with the USOS crew members, the NASA and crew members and um, our ESA crew member, Paolo Nespoli, um, to talk about the EVA tomorrow, make sure they understand the procedures and have a really detailed conversation about what the objectives are for that. Uh, that's gonna be a very busy day tomorrow. The crew starts really early. So most of what they're doing today is really just final prep um, for that and we're trying to give them a little bit of a rest before they kick into high gear tomorrow. So the, the team that you see here, this, is, this team in Houston takes care of all the systems on board 
the space station in the U.S. segment, so on the, on the half of the station that's provided by NASA, ESA, CSA, and JAXA. Um, we have a, a counterpart team in Moscow that we work with and we're talking to over voice loops all the time. They take care of the Russian segment uh, of the space station. They also handle the Soyuz and Progress vehicles that fly to and from the station. One of the responsibilities of this team also is working with the, um, the providers of visiting vehicles. So that's Orbital ATK, SpaceX, and JAXA for the HTV cargo vehicles. Um, we're also working with the commercial crew providers, and we'll be getting ready for those demonstration flights next year. Um, we're all looking forward to that. That's a lot of what I do when I'm not in this room, is working on commercial crew and getting those guys up and running, which is a really exciting uh, project. And, and a lot of things going on all the time, so it keeps us very busy. I'm going to pause right there and ask you if you have any questions for me. Uh, I have a question. One of, um, one of the things that we're curious about is how the, the commercial space industry is interacting with NASA, mm -hmm. and in particular tomorrow we're going to visit NanoRacks. And oh, great. When NanoRacks is going to launch some of the little microsatellites and, and whatnot, what's that like for you guys here at Mission Control, and can you tell us about that? So the first thing that we worry about when we're deploying anything from the space station is, is it going to come back and hit us? <laughs> so we actually do a fair amount of analysis prior to any one of those events to make sure that it's not. The next thing that we worry about is we have a lot of vehicles that come and go to the space station. So the next thing that we worry about is, is it going to hit anybody else that is, is coming up to visit? Um, and uh, so again, there's a lot of, of uh, review that, that goes into that, and that becomes an international and also you know, broad commercial conversation because we have to talk to all the providers of vehicles that support the space station. Um, so it's, that's been a really interesting process just going through that. Now this is not the first time we've deployed things from the space station. We, in, in spacewalks, we drop things, for example, um, and we've had to throw things away from the space station before. So we know how to do that analysis. It's just a matter of who all is part of that conversation. Um, and, th and then the next thing that we, that we really think about is what are the goals of doing that and what are we learning? By doing that, so we, you know, seeing lots of small deployables is a really different. Uh, uh, it's a different kind of orbital mechanics problem than this big thing flying around in circles. So it's it's a really interesting conversation all the way around. Next, we went to the space vehicle mock-up facility, where we were able to enter mock-ups of various ISS modules, as well as a Mars rover prototype, which was pretty incredible, and got a first-hand look at a host of new technologies. Please watch your step as you come in, especially as you get closer to the edge, it drops off. So, um, think it work as hell, and I'm going to make you do it. <laughs> So this gives you an idea of what the interior volume looks like. If you remember, it's circular outside. So the backs of these racks are circular, and they actually pivot. So you can disconnect them, pivot them out to get to the back uh, for maintenance and whatnot. Some of these can actually be moved. The science racks can actually be put in different locations. And that's useful because if you think about it, the station's flying like this. Here's the front end. It actually wants to sort of do this. This is the heavier side, this is a bigger module, there's more mass this way. So the center of gravity of the station is in the US lab, and that's where we have the best microgravity. We actually have one millionth of Earth gravity. Over here, depending on how much torque you know, the Earth's atmosphere changes in density, 
based on the solar cycle, so sometimes you get a little more drag, and so it pulls, and we have uh, moment gyros that will pull it back. You'll get one one hundredth level microgravity to one millionth in here. So if your experiment is very sensitive to microgravity, we'll put you in the racks in, in the US lab versus in here. This module is the largest laboratory of the laboratories on station. It has the, behind Yolanda, you can see the unique capability that we can prepare science in the shirt sleeve environment. So there's a little table in that tube, that airlock, slides out, prepare your science, put it inside, the table slides outside into the vacuum of space. You have robotic controllers there on the left. Mm -hmm. You can use robot arms, grab the experiment, we have an exposed facility here that lets you see nadir or into the center of the earth, zenith into the darkness of space, ram into the direction of the station, or aft so you're protected from ram. So you've got a lot of different viewing capabilities from that exposed facility. We can also hand off to the larger arm, and the larger arm can then put the experiment along the length of the truss work. After lunch, we went to the robotics facility where we had the pretty incredible opportunity to meet and shake the hand of Robonaut, which is a robotic astronaut helper, as well as experience wearable technology. I'm Ron Diffler. I'm the branch chief of the robotics technology branch. And if you missed it, you saw the robot that I'm his arms up there. It's biceps were designed after mine. <laughs> um, this copy of Robonaut will never go into space, but we think it may have ideas of its own. So back in 2011, we actually sent a copy of this robot onto the space station. If you look at the poster right back there, you'll see the space station crew from STS-133 that took Robonaut 1's upper body into space. Since that time, we've added legs, and now it looks more like this unit right behind me. So I mentioned we put the robot into space. Now you can imagine putting a multi-hundred pound robot with a wingspan of almost eight feet as being something that would, rate, that would um, get the attention of the safety folks. And that's a very fair thing, then they'd be concerned with having such a large robot. We, of course, were very concerned that the crew um, needed to be, we wanted the crew to be very comfortable around the robot. So we're gonna have Tom run a script here where the robot's gonna run through a free space motion, and then I'm gonna get in the way of the robot, and he'll run the same exact motion again, and you'll see what happens when you have inadvertent contact between the robot and the person. We affectionately refer to this demonstration as the Hit Ron demo, and I'm wrong. So imagine me being on the station, working on something, and the robot just starts to move for no reason. It interacts with you in a very comfortable way. Not only does it have a nice soft skin, which makes for a comfortable interaction, we also only, also only give the robot the command to give enough force or torque to perform its task. So then when it runs into something, it just stops because it doesn't have enough torque to go beyond it. Um, I'm gonna go up to the robot and just shake its hand and it will realize that I want to shake hands. It will close its hand, help me with, uh, perform the shake with me and then look at the camera to have its picture taken. Uh -huh. This is a way in which we're giving the robot the ability to interpret stimuli from the environment. And we're gonna give all of you a chance to do the same thing. We'll, we'll, be able to, we'll send you the picture. So, please do what I did and remember to look at the camera person. Amy's going to take your picture here. The robot will always remember to look at the camera person. People sometimes forget. Shake hands and then look at Amy. My name is Emily McBrien and I'm a mechanical engineer here in the wearable robotics lab. And I want to showcase for you guys uh, what we call the, the RoboGlove. 
So you saw Robonaut, he's got a bunch of actuators in his hands to actually move his fingers. We took that technology, the exact same actuator almost, um, but instead of putting it on the skeleton of the robot, we put it within a wearable device, a glove, that you can put on and actually augments the user's grasping force. Um, so I have some buttons in my fingertips that when I press down on it, it activates the actuators, which are mounted here, have tendons that go up through my fingers, just like in Robonaut 2, and actually pull my hand down for me. So um, in this mode, I'm getting an assisted grasp from my from these fingers, and the button on the thumb releases. Um, in this one, um, I've got an assisted grasp on my lower fingers, but my index is still free because I think uh, one of the worst things that people get kind of worried about when they say robotics helping you and controlling you um, is that you lose control. But in this, within in this demo or this demonstration, I still have full control of the, of the drill. The glove is just like an added tool to help me hold the drill. So if I've got something that's really cumbersome and hard to hold, I can have the glove take over that task and I could focus then on how I use the tool, get it in the right position and using it. And again, the button on the thumb kind of releases that. Um, I have a, another mode here where if you apply just a little bit of pressure, yeah, just a little bit of pressure on the fingertips, the glove will take over. And with these three actuators mounted up to my fingers, it actually provides about 10 to 15 pounds of grasp assistance on top of my own grasp. But what this allows me to do is if I'm in a fatiguing environment where I have to pick up a lot of things, drop them, pick them up, drop them, um, this allows the me to apply just about one pound of pressure and the glove responds with 10 to 15. So over, you know, over time, you don't have to use as much energy because you have the glove that's helping you take over. And uh, the glove was uh, originated with a project just like Robonaut 2 with the General Motors. So um, NASA's, NASA's here somewhere. Um, but we developed this with General Motors in order to help offload some of the repetitive stress injuries and fatiguing effects that was on their factory line workers. So a car comes over, someone would do something on the car, so you're doing the exact same task every 30 seconds for eight hours a day, and you get a lot of repetitive stress injury. Um, so I want to do a, a quick exercise with you guys. Do you take your hand? We then took turns in a virtual reality simulation of the ISS, which was pretty incredible to say the least. Now, while VR hardware is becoming more common in the marketplace, we were able to interact with an advanced version of this technology, as well as the people behind it. So, hello, uh, welcome to the Virtual Reality Lab. We have been working to provide uh, support for astronaut training since the 1990s, early 90s. And um, the beginning of this was actually, we were actually created to build a uh, graphic engine to provide uh, uh, shuttle support for the shuttle space program. And our first, uh, actually, mission was to fix the Hubble Space Telescope. And at the time, uh, we built the graphics and simulation for the to actually go ahead and fix the, the Hubble. And we did it, and since then, we were funded to provide virtual reality for NASA Johnson Space Center. And we have been doing that since then. So VR is pretty, you know, old for us. <laughs> we have used that long for that long. Um, now, the graphics uh, that you see here in the engine, the graphic engine behind it, was built since then here at JSC 
The same with the helmets, we build them in-house and we modify it accordingly to our needs to train astronauts. This, uh, these graphics that you see here in the space station uh, has been built throughout the years, 17 years that the station has been, you know, uh, built during that time, we were adding components yeah. or places. Or, you know, yeah. really, really amazing. It'll be fun. Yeah. Good to see <laughs> the, 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 the experiments were well, Anybody else? The feedback on the experiment. Do you want to get in? Do you want to get in? Do you want to get in? Yeah. Two more, two more. Yeah. Go, it's What do you think about Yes. Unbelievably, this wasn't the last stop on our visit to NASA. Our last facility tour was of the Human Health and Performance Lab, where they work on everything related to the health of astronauts in space, as well as using that technology and research to benefit us back here on Earth. This is one of NASA's newest facilities, and most of us were pretty impressed by the calibre of work and the people we encountered there. Feel free to... Come on in so you can see the screens. That's kind of where the fun stuff is. So my name is Steve Laurie. I'm a senior scientist here in the Cardiovascular and Vision Laboratory. And uh, we are mostly interested right now in this vision risk and, um, and the changes that are happening to the eyes of some of our astronauts. Um, this first started when crew members were mentioning that they couldn't see as well. Um, and after looking into this further, not only are there some functional changes where their vision is changing while during spaceflight, we're actually seeing some structural changes to the back of their eye. So this camera here is, uh, is called an optical coherence tomography. And this camera allows us to get really high definition images of the retina uh, of these astronauts. This camera has been modified uh, for us specifically. So it's on this arm that allows us to turn it upside down so we can bring crew members in before they fly. We can put them on a tilt table and put them in a head down position, which simulates this headward fluid shift that occurs during weightlessness in space. And then we can image what's happening to their eye here on the ground before they leave. We have a, the same camera up on the International Space Station right now, and we can send these images up there. And one of the things that's really unique it's about this camera It's always fun bringing in a bunch of people into the microbiology lab because most people are kind of looking at me going, microbiology? Why do y'all do microbiology at NASA? Because that's not usually what we normally associate with what goes on. And here in the microbiology laboratory, our main goal is the protection of crew health. And when you start thinking about protecting from infectious disease, contamination, allergic events, that's the kind of things we do here. And I'm not gonna go into a great deal of detail, but if y'all have any questions, let us know. We'll get the information back to you. But if you take a look at what we do, a lot of what we do is monitoring. We monitor the vehicles themselves, air, surfaces, potable water. We monitor spaceflight foods that go up. And uh, we also know that while we'd love to be the smartest people in the world, we realize we don't know everything. And so we also do a lot of research trying to okay, figure out so how to as Mark pointed out, yeah. the stuff that we're doing up there right now to monitor the environment is culture-based. So we get an idea about how many there are, but we have no idea what they are until we get them back on the ground to this lab to test them. Um, it's really important to know what it is because when you drink water, every, you know, every time you drink water, you're drinking bacteria. Those bacteria hurt you. If you drink one of the wrong kind, you can have a really bad day and night and maybe a few days. So, <laughs> so it's really important to know what it is. So I'm really proud of this lab. We are 
um, really, have, we have a lot of great technology in here. We have a, um, a, a traditional DNA sequencer right over there. It's kind of the big guy in the corner. Um, so for that one, you need pure DNA from one type of cell. So, and then have you guys heard of the term microbiome of this, the microbiome of that? Then says right. this instrument right here, you can do the microbiome. I can take a sample from all of you, me, the environment, put it on here. It's going to tell me all the bacteria that are in each one of those samples. Um, phenomenal. This, this, Illumina, this is Illumina technology. Needless really to say that to after about 10 hours straight of touring, our crew was ready for some rest and relaxation. And Space Angels had something very special planned. Space Center Houston rolled out the red carpet and hosted a reception and dinner for Space Angels in the Astronaut Gallery. We were surrounded by historic spacesuits, artifacts, and the actual Apollo 11 command module. It was after hours, so we literally had the entire space to ourselves. So how was the day, Chad? It was awesome. Everyone's super happy. Um, it's literally been like action-packed. We woke up at 7, met, got on the bus at 7, and we've been at NASA all day, and it's like 6 p.m. now. Um, we basically saw everything that was cool related to human spaceflight. We talked to everyone that was leading the different departments. Um, somebody was there to bring it all together. We got to talk about Mars missions. Why are you doing it this way? Why are you choosing to do it that way? What are the key considerations? What are the technologies you're looking for? NASA knew that we're interested in investing in these technologies, so they really curated our trip to be about um, the technologies that they need, that they're looking for, for commercial partners to supply. So that was really cool as well. And this wasn't like the run-of-the-mill, you know, you don't pay to get this NASA tour. I mean, they really rolled out the red carpet. Again, you, you talk about uh, what's happening com in commercial space and why that's so exciting, but it's the government that seeded these, these initial ideas before there was a commercial market, and they've played an incredibly important role in all that. I mean, it's not all about that we went to NASA and we focused on the past and the amazing things that they had done. I mean, we started there, and the progression is, you know, throughout the day we got to the point where we're talking with NASA about, okay, that's great, we've done these amazing things. How are we building on those, and how are we building for the future? How are they um, looking to get to Mars and build the infrastructure on Mars for long-term habitation? What does that architecture look like? How are they working with commercial players to make that reality happen in the most efficient and safe and, uh, you know, reasonable way possible? I think one of the interesting things has been how kind of our earthly technology kind of influences the desire to go to space and how we kind of envision that, as well as pop culture and movies and, and all of those kind of fantasy things, how they become reality. It's almost a chicken and egg kind of thing. I mean, which is first, what NASA comes up with or what the movies kind of push them to go and develop? Um, you know, you look at what could be possible and you think there's all kinds of different products and things that they'll need in order to get there and and I think it'll probably happen before the 20 years that NASA talks about just because private businesses are going to push them to do it faster. It's excellent. It was the perfect end to an incredible day. We shared a collective sense of awe and wonder as we reflected upon all that NASA had achieved in just six decades. Day three, NanoRacks and Ad Astra Rocket Company. 
Our final day kicked off with a very special guest during a private breakfast and daily brief. Eric Berger is also, like me, a space journalist, and he stopped by to speak to the group and discuss the past, present and future of the space industry. Where do you see that? I think that, so I'll go back to something that Jeff Grayson told me a long time ago, um, who, despite XCOR's failures, someone I respect tremendously. Um, he basically said, once we get low-cost access to space, the question doesn't become, you know, what's the one thing we do when we're there? It's, it's what are the many things we do when we're there? And for so long, you know, the, 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 key, the key problem has been the cost of rocket launch and spacecraft. And I think that's why that's the problem Bezos and Musk focused on was, was solving that, that problem. Because if it's just NASA launching a rocket once a year, we're not doing anything. A, a Mars mission is six to eight SLS launches. I mean, give me a break. How are we doing that? A launch, two billion a launch, something. If you factor in the the, the sunk costs, it's three to four billion a launch. I mean, it's 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 just it's 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 an unbelievable amount of money. Um, and there's no public support for that that kind of expenditure. Could be as we get those launch costs down with New Glenn and ITS or Falcon Heavy, fully reusable. Falcon, Falcon Nine even, and Falcon Block Five Falcon yeah. Nine. If that really works like they say it will. So launch costs come down, and pretty much the entire NASA plan gets shoved aside, and private industry does what they want to do yes. because they'll be able to do it at far less. Now NASA, 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 you know, they they play they play a key role in planetary exploration, and, and their their missions to asteroids, the Psyche mission being one of them, um, the Trojan mission being another one. That they, they, they are sort of they they will do a lot of the groundbreaking science, and I think that. They would be willing partners in commercial enterprises as, as sort of you have prospecting missions go out. NASA would want to be a part of that because scientists, there's a lot for them to learn too in those missions. Um, and so. Yeah, but to try to my friends that point, in other words, as long as these two guys. After breakfast, it was back on that tour bus as we headed off to NanoRacks. NanoRacks is the world's leading provider of commercial space station services and has helped usher in a new chapter of the space frontier. They have the customers, they're launching the satellites, they're installing the first commercial airlock, and now they're developing their own commercial space station. This is truly a business that is out of this world and pushing boundaries. Mike Lewis, NanoRack CTO, and Rich Pornell, Senior VP of Business Development, gave us a personal tour of their satellite prep and staging facilities, as well as answering some of our many questions. All right, so we've made it to the first of many awkward hallways, and, uh, and this is kind of a good spot to, to talk about what we do. Um, you know, Nanorex is primarily a, a, a payload and space service provider. You know, we, we put people's stuff in space. Um, we started off building uh, a platform that would take science experiments about this big. Um, you know, the, the story goes, we were about 2008, 2009, the, completion of the space station was approaching and NASA said oh what are we going to do with this thing so they they shifted gears and said well let's let's try to let's try to use it let's see who wants to use it and uh and we jumped right on it uh Jeff and, and Mike Johnson jumped on this thing and said okay we'll do it we, we don't know what but we'll do something 
um, they, they kind of figured out the market and said, okay, we'll put a, a platform up there that you can fly little experiments to. And that's the nano rack was invented. You know, the, we call these modules now, but, uh, but that's kind of the, the genesis. We see a lot of, still today, we sell a lot of really cool experiments that are flown up in this form factor. Uh, and, and we have a you know, number of facilities that host things like this. Uh, we've since expanded to other areas of space utilization. Uh, most recently, uh, a big jump has been in the, the satellite deployment field, which uh, we'll show you some of that. But, but primarily, it's been CubeSats, which are also about this big. Uh, on the wall up here, we have a picture of our first CubeSat we flew. Uh, this was from the University of Hanoi. It's a Vietnamese satellite. Uh, this guy, the PI, called us, kind of cold call, said, hey, I hear you can deploy stuff off the, sat off the space station. And in true NanoRacks fashion, we said, of course you can. Yeah, we'll, we'll definitely do that. And then we had to figure out how to do it. <laughs> um, we, we got this together, figured out the NASA system, found a way to, to get it out, and um, we actually have kind of an iconic picture in our history that, that shows the deployment of this. Um, mm -hmm. when, when that happened, right away we got two questions from just about everybody. One, is this picture real? Because it's a little weird, pictures in space don't have the same like light refraction and stuff. And then two, how do I do it? So, so I will say this is that um, we did do, when we did the first CubeSat, um, we lost our shirts on the deal. But we said, great, we're in the CubeSat business, and we did something that I think is probably the first time in the history of commercial space business plans, and that is we completely underestimated the market. We put in the business plan that we would launch five CubeSats in the first year, and we ended up doing 60 in the first year. Um, so it led us to build more infrastructure. So if you come this way, See uh, Koichi Wakata, he's a, at the time an astronaut, um, now the current head of JAXA, uh, installing what we had to build in reaction to that market. This is our NRCSD, the NanoRax CubeSat deployers, and as you can tell, instead of just deploying one or two of these little guys, it has 48U capacity, so it can do up to 48 satellites. Typically ends up being around 16 or so, they, they make them bigger. But, uh, uh, I'll show you a picture of the other deployer. So One you can that Jeff and I have in common of when we built sort of the businesses that we both worked in the restaurant business. You know, I worked in college and he grew up in the business and we very much tried to apply the same type of stuff you learn in retail to this business just from a sales perspective of the amount of business that we've picked up because to this day, if you send an email to info at nanoracks.com, Jeff reads them. And the amount of business that we get because we're the first to respond you know, is very much a big part of that. And that's what you learn in the restaurant business, right? Somebody comes in, give them water, give them menu, sit them down, you know, uh, get the take process started. Yeah. <laughs> take the order. Exactly, take the order, exactly. They're, they're just dying to take your money, you know? And so we've tried to very much, that's how we've really very much tried, tried to build this business is a lot of people in the past when they were looking to do stuff on the space station, the model was go get the government to pay for a bunch of hardware build the hardware and then try and sell the hardware to someone else. But you built that hardware for NASA and you know no one wants to pay tw the 20 million NASA gave you to build that hardware to go do it for something else. So instead what we did is, is we said, look, we're gonna, you have the space station, <coughs> companies can access it, they can use it, we will pay to build our own hardware. We'll put our own capital up, you don't have to give us a contract. And so that's what we did with the NanoLabs. And so the first, uh, uh, you know, part that we, the, the first investors we could reach of was Visa and MasterCard. And so we bought a computer that we outfitted with 16 USB 
uh, uh, port, and then all of those little labs connect to it, and we had it built and, and flown all for you know uh, tens of thousands of dollars for the first set of hardware, and we've really followed that model ever since. Of lots of people are building rockets, right? Lots of people are building ways to go to space, but let's focus on what's already there and using that as much as possible. And so I always, I always joke, you know, I'm the youngest of five kids, and so the idea of letting leftovers go to waste is a shame. <laughs> and it's the same thing here with the space station. If we had the space station, they built it, people weren't using it, because the nominal process to get a payload ready for the space station through NASA, and this is not a knock on NASA, it's just the way that they operate, is three years. We have flown, in the six years of this company, 600 payloads. The average time from customer signing to flying for us is about nine months to a year, depending on the product. NanoRacks is the only private space company in the world with a live feed of the ISS. And our trip just happened to coincide with a real-time spacewalk, which we were able to watch from the bridge, also known as NanoRacks' own mini mission control. Only a handful of people in the world were privileged enough to see this spacewalk as it happened, which was made possible by the unique access provided to Space Angels members on Expedition 17. After lunch, it was off to the last official stop of the expedition, Ad Astra Rocket Company. While Nanorax is focused on low Earth orbit, Ad Astra is focused on getting us through deep space faster than ever before, to destinations humans have only dreamed of going. Led by the record-holding NASA astronaut Dr. Franklin Chang-Diaz, who also happens to be a physicist, Ad Astra Rocket Company is developing advanced plasma rocket propulsion based on nuclear fusion research. And yes, that sounds like something out of science fiction. But in 2010, the then NASA administrator Charles Bolden said that their technology could be the breakthrough that would reduce the travel time on a Mars mission down from two and a half years to just five months. We started um, back in 2005. We used to be a NASA, a NASA laboratory. And, and we, we were there at NASA for about a decade. 1995 until 2005. I, I was a NASA, NASA employee uh, for 25 years. So we uh, privatized the uh, what used to be called the Advanced Space Propulsion Laboratory. And NASA was, um, was actually very, uh, very nice. They uh, let us um, remain at the NASA facility uh, even though we were a company. This is a kind of a, almost like an x-ray picture of the engine, if you were to, to look at it inside. Uh, what you see here in the center is essentially a, um, a, an invisible magnetic pipe. You know, we make a, uh, uh, we, we are dealing with plasmas. Plasmas are extremely hot, very hot. I mean, the, the, the coldest plasma that we deal with at the beginning of our rocket is 40,000 degrees. There's no material that can sustain those kinds of temperatures. And by the time the plasma exits the uh, rocket nozzle, it is five million degrees. So it's like the temperature of the sun. So we are not holding it together with um, materials. So we use a magnetic pipe. We use superconducting magnets, and the superconducting magnet we use here is the only one of its kind is um, 
operating at five degrees Kelvin. So it's about 268 degrees centigrade below zero. Very cold. Yet a few uh, centimeters, a few inches from the magnet, uh, you have a plasma which is millions of degrees. So you can see the challenge of the technology is that sort of thermal stratification that you have to achieve in a very small space. Now, we, we make the plasma from gas, um, and the gas we use is just is argon gas. Argon gas, very cheap. You buy it in the store, it costs five, $5 a kilo. So compared to other electric rockets, which use xenon, which is $3,000 a kilo. And, um, and then we ionize it, because our neutral argon does not does not see that magnetic pipe. We need to make it into an electrical fluid. So we ionize it, and we ionize it with electromagnetic waves. It's little um, radiation, just the same way you, you would heat uh, your cup of coffee in a microwave oven. You, know, you launch these waves, and these waves interact with the fluid, the coffee, and the coffee gets hot. At this point, we're, we're about 40,000 degrees. The plasma flows along this pipe, along this magnetic pipe, without touching anything. Because if not, if it were to touch, it would damage the, the, the surrounding structure. So we are very careful to let the plasma flow without touching to the second stage here, where we add more electromagnetic waves, more power. And in the same way, the plasma gets hotter, and it gets to a point of about a, uh, about a five million degree temperature. Not enough for triggering a thermonuclear fusion, which we, someday we will, but not now, but enough to provide a very, very powerful rocket. Housed in a warehouse located in a part of Houston zoned for retail, Dr. Diaz and his team had literally constructed a gigantic nitrogen-cooled vacuum chamber where they regularly fire the most advanced and hottest burning rocket in the world. It operates much harder than this because running something at 5 Kelvin is very hard. The refrigeration requirements are very tough, especially in space. And so now the superconductors have now moved to these materials. This is um, a ceramic. Isn't that amazing? Ceramic. This is ceramic. This is, um, this is called bisco, uh, bismuth, strontium, calcium, copper oxide. It's like a... All those components. Yeah, it's, a, it's, like, a, it's like a sandwich of all these, all these things, layered. Elements in yeah. one. And that one will superconduct at 100 Kelvin. Nice. Pretty nice. <laughs> wow. So, so we, instead we, of waiting three days to cool things down, you can maybe do it a day and a half. Yeah, sooner. Or, yeah. But, but we also carry more current. Right. Yeah. This one, I mean, this is even better. Even better. Wait, we have the... This, this, is, this is the latest. That was nothing. This is... This is the latest. Needless to say, we were all blown away. Under Ad Astra's Space Act agreement with NASA, yes, that's a real thing, they're putting their rocket engine through a series of progressively more strenuous tests, meaning they are steadily increasing the number of hours that they burn the engine while maintaining its internal stability. Their immediate goal is to validate the technology enough to incorporate Ad Astra's rocket engine into one of NASA's future flight plans to a distant planet.
If anyone has the determination and belief in purpose to pull this off, it's Dr. Diaz. To get a sense of his character, I want to share a bit of audio from an impromptu story he told when someone in our group noticed a picture in the hallway which featured an astronaut attached to the end of the robotic arm on the ISS. Turns out it was Franklin Diaz himself. Yeah, that was that was uh, one, one, one of my space books, yeah. And uh, yeah, that that um, I was being taken to the other side of the space station to do some repairs. They had some some problems, and this is the Canadian arm. It's about you know sixty feet long, and they were <laughs> moving me out, and the, the, the arm had been all stretched out. And I was thinking, oh my God, what happens if something breaks? <laughs> what if I got myself into it? Yeah. And then it broke. It stopped? The arm stopped. <laughs> oh my God. You wished it into existence? Yeah, yeah. So what did you do? Well, I, I, no, I tried to keep my, my cool. <laughs> and I said uh, to, um, to the onboard crew, I said, so what's going on? And I said, well, they always say stand by, you know, as they always say, <laughs> stand <laughs> by, you know. <laughs> I'm standing by, I've been standing by. <laughs> and, uh, so uh, they, essentially the, they had a software glitch on the arm reboot. and they had to reboot it. They had to reboot the whole thing. Try shutting it off and on. Oh yeah, yeah they had to reboot it. Wow. Unplug so, it for 30 seconds, plug it back in. Turn it on, turn it off, turn it off and turn it on. Canadians. And the... Um, but what was interesting is that when that happened, um, we went into the, the dark, uh, the, the night time. Oh, wow. It was really weird because uh, I was in a, in a certain orientation that I couldn't see the station behind me. Yeah. And we were flying over the Pacific and no lights wow. was covered. And it was just completely dark and all I could see just stars everywhere. Oh. And I thought everybody left. <laughs> <laughs> I thought everybody had left. left. <laughs> and they, they had, uh, you, know, <laughs> wow. you know, so it started, you know, the mind starts playing all kinds of weird How weird, long did this last? This lasts about 20 minutes or so oh, on the cool. night. Yeah, this is a little yeah. scary. Yeah. Wow. And, um, but, you know, you kind of start concentrating <coughs> on what you're supposed to be doing and get a... I'm sure they have a life keep ring your that cool. they can... <laughs> <laughs> no. <laughs> There's no life ring. There's nobody out there. <laughs> no, we do have here, uh, and in the, in the side, we have little jets, so that if we were to become loose, yeah, try we, to we, can, we can fly to some extent, only about uh, maybe 15, 10, 15 minutes of, uh, so of propulsion. So you're the real life George Clooney. Well, it was a completely full three days, but we got to experience not just where we've come from in terms of space exploration and those pioneers that led the way, but also where we're heading and the value in terms of private industry and investment, which is really helping to drive forward and shape these new commercial space ventures. We all experienced something truly extraordinary, an opportunity to honor the past and fuel the future, something none of us will soon forget. Thank you, Sarah. That was great. I'm so glad you were able to join us this year. It certainly wouldn't have been as extraordinary without you. Uh, thanks for having me, Chad. It was an incredible experience. It truly excites me where we're going and the role that Space Angels is playing in inspiring investors to actually invest in this new frontier, this new industry. So it was great to see and I can't wait for next year. I have to say it on the record, Space Angels Expedition 17 Houston was fantastic. 
If you're an angel investor and have been a regular listener, I hope that you're starting to understand that being a member of Space Angels means that you're part of a tribe, a movement, if you will, that's bringing humanity closer to our destiny in low Earth orbit, the moon, Mars, and the stars beyond. And being part of this tribe of the entrepreneur makes investing just about as fun, interesting, and engaging as anything you've experienced before. It's undeniable that angel investors, like our members from whom you've heard in this episode, are the fuel that's driving the entrepreneurial space race. And you can be a part of it too. If you'd like to learn more about becoming a member of Space Angels, investing in early stage space, and joining us on this exciting journey into humanity's future, visit spaceangels.com and join us today.